Brandon Brands. Hi, this is Pauline Brand, author of Aesthetic Intelligence. If you want to know how to boost and use your own aesthetic intelligence for business advantage, you should listen to Brands on Brands on Brands. In a world where advertising is ignored, business is exposed, and the only constant is change, how do you build a brand that matters? Welcome to Brands on Brands on Brands, a home for those who think different and push their boundaries. This is where branding that matters lives. Now, here's your host, Brandon Berkmeyer. Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to Brands on Brands on Brands with Brandon Berkmeyer, your personal marketing coach. And I believe that building a brand that matters is the only way for a business to thrive tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in each week as we talk to thought leaders in marketing about how to help build your business and your brand. We do that every Monday. And on Thursdays, we dive in deeper, just you and me and the mic on strategies and tactics you can apply today to your business. Today is an interview episode. I'm excited to bring you another thought leader in this space, definitely a different angle than we typically cover called aesthetic intelligence, which I will get into what that is. But first, Pauline Brown is our guest. For nearly 30 years, she's acquired, built, and led the world's most influential global luxury brands. Most recently, she served as the chairman of North America for the world's leading luxury goods company, LVMH. Away Hennessy Louis Vuitton. If you guys got those Louis purses, you know what I'm talking about, where she provided regional leadership for about 70 brands in five sectors, including fashion and leather goods, watches and jewelry, perfumes and cosmetics, wines and spirits, and selective retailing. While at LVMH, Pauline also served on the board of L Capital, a private equity funded, backed by LVMH, as well as on the boards of several LVMH subsidiaries, including Donna Karen. Mark Jacobs, and Fresh Cosmetics. In 2018, she decided to write a book based on the learnings of her insights from a course that she started two weeks, two years prior called The Business of Aesthetics. That book, which we are talking about today, is called Aesthetic Intelligence, How to Boost It and Use It in Business and Beyond. It was released by HarperCollins this past November 2019. And that's what we're diving into today. How to use the senses to help deliver your brand to your customers. That's sensory experiences, that's touch, taste, smell, feel, uh, and all the ins and outs of that, the things we don't pay attention to, but that the good businesses out there that are paying attention to are delivering better customer experiences for their customers and on the backside of that, getting better loyalty, more references and referrals, higher sales, more traffic the things that you want in your business. We dive into topics like how do you master the power of aesthetics? How do you get started telling your story using aesthetics? How do you, you know, some real world examples of what good and bad aesthetics are. We dive into the book most definitely and get into, you know, things like how to use things like fashion or image or other ways of curating your look and your feel to bring that experience to the world, to your customers. So lots going on here in this book, in this interview. I hope you guys learn as much from it as I did about being more thoughtful about designing your customer experience and designing 
your interaction and engagement with your customers from the beginning to the very end. And without further ado, let me bring to the show Pauline Brown. Let's get going. Check it out. Brandon Brands. All right, let's get going. I'm excited to bring to you today's guest. I am pleased to welcome Pauline Brown to the show. Pauline, first and foremost, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me, Brandon. It's great to be on the show. Now, this is going to be a little bit different for everyone. Uh, Before we get started, I hope my guest Pauline and you listeners indulge me for one minute so we can give you the best possible listening experience. I know that when you listen to this show, you may be in a lot of different environments. You might be in your car, at the gym, a lot of different places. To get the most out of this, I'd recommend two things. One, pick a place where you can be alone with your thoughts. That means you have a distraction-free environment and a dedicated block of time. And number two, feel free to be doing something that focuses your attention and brings your energy into your body. I love personally to be working out. You could be doing other active tasks that don't take a lot of brain energy, like walking and driving and washing the dishes. Any of those things work. That's my two tips for you right now. Thank you for indulging me. And the reason I'm giving you this advice, and this is not something I do every show, the reason I'm doing that and I'm excited to talk with our guest today, Pauline, is that we're diving into aesthetic intelligence. And a big part of that is about designing environments and experiences. Pauline, how am I doing so far? (laughs) Great. That's as good an introduction as I've heard when it comes to aesthetic intelligence. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I've done my homework. And I don't have all the senses to connect with the audience. You know, I don't have the, the There's touch. There's no aroma coming through the screen. What? Not yet. I'm cooking some cookies in the background. So that's helping me, but it's not helping you guys. <laughs> well, I think the listeners just have to go in the kitchen and start cooking. All right. But I do have more than just words to work with. And these are things I'm picking up in, from reading this book here. You know, there's tone, there's energy, there's articulation, verbal imagery, and more things at our disposal that are tools in our arsenal that I may be ignoring, or a lot of us might be ignoring, depending on what we're doing as marketers. Now, I mean, would you agree with that? Well, I would agree that things that we, have, that we are doing and have been doing for the last many decades as marketers are, not, are no longer working, and that marketers and other people, other people in business, have not adapted nearly to the extent that the marketplace has to this new reality. Yeah, I, exactly. Now, let me, let's dive into this. So first and foremost, the book is aesthetic intelligence, how to boost it and use it in business and beyond. This is the book from Pauline Brown. That's what we're here to talk about today and more. And she also teaches a class on the business of aesthetics. So how, let's start by like setting the stage with aesthetics, like the definition, how do you define it, mm-hmm. aesthetics and aesthetic intelligence, so we can all start with the same foundation. Sure. Well, I should start by saying I was not uh, an academic to begin with. That was a very late in life transition for me, and, uh, and it did open the way to this book. Uh, and, and the reason I mention that is uh, the vast majority of my career, almost three decades, was in the business world. And more specifically, uh, working to build what were already pretty established and exciting, mostly premium brands, global brands. One of the things that I noticed over the years, starting with my uh, decade in the cosmetics industry, moving into fashion and other areas of luxury, uh, I even touched on wine and spirits and watches and jewelry, is that these are all businesses that essentially do not sell a single item anyone needs, especially at the high end, but across the board. Nobody needs wine. Nobody needs a watch. But people get great pleasure out of buying it, else these industries would not have lasted in some cases a few centuries, and they're still going strong. So 
you know, the, and, and the theory, as I worked in the luxury goods and, um, and design-oriented uh, world, was that that was fine for those kind of businesses. But if you work in more industrial-oriented companies or technology companies or healthcare or automotive or, you know, you name it, that this had no place. Uh, those industries were largely driven by efficiency, by uh, economic sort of uh, laws of, uh, of, of economy around the scale and around the market power and around growing share and around speed, of course. And that worked for a long time for companies. Uh, it really doesn't work anymore because at some point you can't cost something less than zero. At some point you can't go you know, faster than you know, um, a nanosecond or a fraction of a nanosecond. So we've taken a lot of these inefficiencies out of most businesses and companies are no longer able to compete just on that basis alone. The reason I'm bringing all of this up is it brings me to the topic of when, when I was first approached by the Harvard Business School, they were open to having me come to teach a course. And uh, we were debating a bit, what would the course be? I had spent um, the prior number of years as the head of North America for LVMH, which is the world's leading luxury goods company. You know, they, they initially suggested, well, maybe it's consumer branding, or maybe it's around, uh, you know, global retailing, or maybe it's uh, consumer marketing, and maybe it's luxury goods management. And I kept thinking, I don't want to teach people who are just going into the fields that I just had left. I really felt that there were lessons from those businesses that could apply to the larger business world. And there was no reason that it was so siloed that this, the value that they create in beautiful designs and beautiful experiences and lifting the soul and giving people a sense of, of humanity and of storytelling and of sort of rich aesthetic surroundings, that this could find its way. And we've seen examples where it has very successful in all sorts of companies. And so they asked me uh, in this discussion with Harvard, well, what would you call the class? And I kind of blurted out without having given it a lot of thought, well, it's sort of like the business of aesthetics. And they said, well, that's really interesting. That could how do you spell it? Like no one even knew how, well, really, do you spell aesthetic with an A, with an E? And so that's the beginning of my, of my journey that takes me to the book. And what was interesting to me in the, in the first semester of the course is I expected, you know, budding MBAs who were interested in the fields I had come from to take the course. I did not expect, and I was pleasantly surprised by the interest by people from all sorts of backgrounds and um, specializations, whether it was technology. I even had a few medical students. I had quite a few from the Kennedy School trying to register in and cross-matriculate. So um, so that said to me, not only was my theory something that resonated for me, but that it obviously resonated for the marketplace, which in this case was the student body. It was a very popular course. And then I concluded that I really should take the ideas to the larger, to a broader population. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book. So, and the, why, uh, yeah. So, so your question, did I answer what is this? Yeah, like, well, yeah, no, it's okay. We can get back to that. And, but what stood out to me, like, why do you think it was resonating? So like, why is this idea of aesthetic intelligence relevant today for businesses and marketers? What do you think about it? Well, I'd say there's two, there's two things that come to mind immediately. So one is because we are, you know, observing such radical change, you know, in the, um, and, and it's not just that it's, it, it's radical, it's that it's so fast. So here we're still getting used to like what it means to be living in this sort of omni-channel, you know, virtual reality meets actual reality. So there's there's all of that, you know, and the globalization, and at the same time a certain tribalism that's happening in in uh, in government and in I'd say general in, in population and, and economic standards. I mean, we're very bifurcated as a people and grappling with a lot of different issues. 
And yet the systems that are in place really haven't been built to address them um, and to answer to them. And so I think some of it is that the student didn't quite know what they get out of a class like mine. It was really by the time I was, you know, uh, uh, posting it as an elective, it was really still just in concept phase. So I don't think it was that they knew exactly what they learned. I think that they knew that they needed something above and beyond what was being taught and that what was being taught, which hasn't changed that dramatically since it was, you know, since I was in business school almost 30 years ago, that that wasn't really giving them, it wasn't arming them for the kind of success that they all need, you know, given the, co- the, the cost of their education and their general ambition. So I think that was one of the reasons. I think the other reason, which is a little more universal, and it's why I felt that this would work or this would interest an audience well beyond Harvard Business students, is that it makes sense. You know, before we are professionals, we are people and we respond to things as people. And we all like to be, you know, whatever our standard of living is in spaces that feel right and good and comfortable for us, whatever our taste is. We all, you know, it's human to want to sort of decorate yourself in the form of personal style, whether your style is minimalist or maximalist. We all are attracted to beautiful sights and scenes and things like music. We know from research that there are environments that can make us much more productive as professionals, that if we we know that if we put certain uh, colors on the wall and certain music in the system, that people work differently. And so it just makes sense that whatever business you're in, that this is sort of untapped value. And in some cases, I'm not talking high design. I'm talking very, very basic approaches to just how does that particular design element make a person feel, whether the person is a customer or an employee or a partner, whoever, there's still people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you've kind of highlighted a lot of things, which there's this dichotomy in a lot of cases. We're more connected than ever, but less connected. We are more aware of our surroundings than ever, but also less. Like there's a lot of that back and forth. Mm-hmm. But I do want to lay that groundwork. So let's, like, let's, for the, the basics of the conversation, say, okay, like, what are we talking about when we say aesthetics? Yeah. So that was the first question you asked, which I didn't really answer. No worries. So, so aesthetics, I use that word very deliberately. It isn't design. It isn't beauty. Okay. Can, aesthetic objects can certainly look beautiful. It should be well-designed. But aesthetics comes from the, the Greek word aesthetikos, which has to do with uh, perceptive. Which So, for example, if you think of an anesthesiologist, which we go because we want to numb our senses because we're about to have some surgical procedure. So aesthetics is really about arousing the senses in a pleasant or positive or exciting way. You know, and our senses, obviously, we, you know, we think a lot when we talk about aesthetics, about visual elegance, very, very important. But I would say we live in a society where we put a, a relative or disproportionate value on the visual design and a, um, we underinvest in the design of all those other elements around acoustics, around lighting, around textiles. Textiles, not just that should look good, but actually, how does it make you feel and what's the effect on you? So when I talk about aesthetics and in the context of business, I'm talking about all of the elements that actually give you some sensorial reaction, positive or negative. Obviously, if it is an aesthetic one, if you achieve the aesthetics, it's a, it's a, it's a positive one. And, and how that enhances value, that aesthetic value actually creates financial value in the long term. Yeah, it feels more holistic, which it was what I like, because there's I mean, we've talked, I've heard, you know, customer experience has been around forever, but that's not described in, I think, the same way. You, you, the, mm-hmm. the images of like service versus 
the full experience, I think, come to mind. And then the other other mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, you know, design has been something that's been around marketing forever. And you know, because you've worked with luxury brands and businesses, but it seems like more than just the design, more than just mm-hmm. customer experience with the service. Well, the, the other issue, and you're right, um, you know, there are certain buzzwords that have taken hold and have transformed some companies, but they have limitations. In most industries uh, that are even a little bit sophisticated, there'll be some reference to what they call design thinking. People for years have been talking about design thinking. Design thinking, which I have a lot of respect for, and I know some very masterful um, experts in the area, but that is really about using design to solve a problem. So for example, how can I get customers from A to B to Z without, you know, more seamlessly? What it isn't about is how do I actually elicit delight? Why? Because delight is not something that you can simply design for in this problem-solution approach. Delight is, is a feeling, and it's often aroused through surprise. So if you, take, if, you, if you do customer research and you ask them, what would satisfy you or, or what would you deem an excellent experience? They can give you very clear metrics. But if you ask them, what would delight you? Often, whatever they tell you, I say, that's just, you know, point of entry. That's just, you know, that, 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 that's table stakes. Because to be really delighted, they shouldn't be telling you. They should be, you know, they, sh- they should be, you know, you know, if you think about, you know, and I could give you examples in the business world, but, you know, in that even take something as trite as, as, as a fashion collection. You know, if you just have a beautifully designed line using high quality fabric on um, coming down the runway, but in a very predictable, nicely delivered, but predictable way, people really are not going to respond. They may say it was a, was a nice, elegant collection. But that's not what stimulates a purchase, especially in a world where people don't need more clothes. But then you look at a, a wacky line like Gucci over the last few years, where they take, you know, patterns that historically would have been um, seen as clashing, and they'll have very odd displays on the runway, like models going down carrying replicas of their head on their side. They'll uh, they'll have a you know a campaign with outfits next to an actual peacock or a taxidermy peacock. That element of surprise, that gets attention and it kind of tickles people. And so, you know, it's a, it's a fine balance to do surprise well, but I would say you're never going to get the answer to that particular opportunity through customer research. Yeah. And I, what's funny is you mentioned, you talk about that a little bit in depth uh, in the book and you, there's this, these wonderful stories about like ugly fashion and oh, yes. the, this, the idea that, you know, it's true in fashion, but also in marketing that there's sometimes it's the less perfect things that we are more yes. attracted to, you know, or, you know, an engaging aesthetic, but why does that work? Why does ugly fashion, if you will, work? Well, so the, the reference that you're making, it's actually, a, uh, comes from a French term, jolie laid. So uh, French uh, word for pretty is jolie and for ugly is laid. And the term was historically used to describe a beautiful woman's face where there's something a little off. It could be, you know, uh, Cindy Crawford's mole. It could be uh, Lauren Hutton's gap in her front teeth. It could be uh, Kate Moss having sort of very super wide, wide set eyes that almost look, uh, you know, like a little, you know, off, distorted. And it, it makes them that much more interesting and that much more compelling. Perfection is not interesting. And so if you think of like the most beautiful scene, scenery that you could see, let's just say it's, uh, you know, the mountains of Aspen or driving along, you know, Pacific One in California, and you're looking out at the ocean, there's nothing perfect about those scenes. It's not like, you know, a 
sort of that, that everything is lined up and it's symmetrical and that the colors have somehow been dictated so that they sort of all, you know, in ombre fashion move into each other. That is nature. I mean, nature is not perfect, but nature is very rich and resplendent and, and exciting. And our eye, you know, likes that. So long as, as that imperfection, you know, is again done in a way that feels natural, that feels um, real, organic. I think when we, we see certain things with our eye that are imperfect, it feels, it, it can be discomforting. So there is a judgment that goes with, with that level of imperfection, but it also can feel, as I said, interesting and memorable. And by the way, if, if we were buying, whether it's fashion or whether it's a car, because we needed it purely for the utility, then what I'm talking about really has no relevance in this conversation. But 90% of what we buy is not for utility. Or if it is for utility, that may be why we bought, you know, we bought a car, but it's not why we bought that Audi or even that Toyota. We picked that because it had some sort of emotional connection to us. And marketers make the mistake time and again of thinking a lot about functions and features and essentially utility. And you have to offer, you know, the right functions and features, but you're not going to win on the right functions and features. You're going to win on uh, on the right emotional connection. And one of the most powerful ways to connect with people emotionally is through their senses. Right. And as marketers, we do talk a lot about people, you know, like we got to be better storytellers. It is more than sharing the benefits, you know, it's more than sharing the features. It is sharing the benefits or the transformation. And these are, these are pretty common these days as, as practices. But I think we don't take that extra step to your point of delivering mm-hmm. a fully thought out sensory experience with our mm-hmm. products themselves. I think the mm-hmm. ads are getting better. People have like we've figured out a lot of the the tricks, if you will, the you know, make it it doesn't have to be a perfect ad either. There's gotta be something that stands out or a more authentic picture of someone on Facebook looks will, will do better than a, a modeled ad will do. I think they figured out some of those formulas. But in terms of the extra step of delivering that product or that experience within the company, I think uh, what opportunity could we be missing here? Oh, so many. I mean, uh, so first of all, you know, we, we live in an age where advertising is not nearly as big a driver for why we buy and what we buy than it was when I was coming of age, which doesn't mean that that traditional marketing doesn't have a role. It just, uh, it's hard to, uh, to really move the mark on that. I would say, you know, I would divide out the, uh, the investment in aesthetics into uh, a few different buckets. Advertising to me is one, and, it, and, and or sort of campaign management, campaign development is one, but it's a, it's a pretty superficial one. The first thing is product design. And, you know, when you think of product design, whatever business you're in, and it could be your product could be insurance product, right? And essentially the design of it isn't just you know, how much coverage you're going to offer and, you know, what, what the cost is. The product is also how it's presented and how it's communicated. And every touch point around that product, when, from customer service to, you know, the renewal bills, that every, every time you're t- talking to your customer in some way, whether it's around delivering the service or keeping the service as a, you know, as a, uh, a condition and an opportunity for the customers, you have to really think about those emotional reactions that they're having and how can you be both consistent in your in your voice and also pleasing to the to the individual on the other end because as i said before before people were insurance customers they were people 
So that's point number one is around product. Uh, point number two is around what I'll call the, the, the experience and the service. So if you, let's say you have um, a dentist's office and, you know, clearly, you know, you've got a lot of mechanics going into running that practice from the scheduling to the, you know, hiring and training of your technicians to the, you know, setup of the, of the equipment. But you also have a waiting room. You also have, you already have a coat of paint on the wall where the dental procedures are happening. And why wouldn't you give some thought when it comes to choosing that palette on the wall to, you know, how does it make someone sitting in the chair feel? How does the floor make, uh, the, the, whatever uh, materials you decide to use on the floor, make, for example, hygienist feels who, who might not be wearing sneakers? You know, so that's also part of the aesthetic empathy is that your constituents, whether they're customers or they're uh, people who are delivering your service, should all, you know, be given um, some, some thought and some attention. And so there's a lot of these elements, I call them invisible designs that go into an environment. If I ask somebody, did you have a good experience at the dentist's office? You know, aside from the fact that it might have been painful or expensive or whatever, you know, usually people might will remember things like, oh, they had a very nice attitude you know, at the front desk or my dentist is very skilled, they won't remember that the the, the, the particular shade of camel on the wall uh, had a calming influence whilst all this very noisy machinery was going on or, you know, they were concerned about some gum sensitivity. They won't remember things. So you can't, but, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have a profound impact on how they experienced that particular interaction. Right. So it the, affects the, how they the feel. Right. It certainly it. does. Mm-hmm. It certainly does. So then, so we've got this space, and then we've got all the things I call the the symbols that represent what you're what you're selling in the form of product and how you're selling it in the form of service. And that would be, for example, the campaign, or that would be you know outreach efforts to just make sure that you you know that that people remember that you're a service that's available or a product that's for sale or whatever it is. So there's you know I go back to when I'm talking about um, the aesthetics. I would say things like the ad campaign are the final step, not the not where you start in terms of really defining what is your aesthetic proposition. It's the final step of expression for that particular decision or set of decisions. Right, and that makes sense to me. I mean, what's some of the the funny? There's a lot of stats out there, but the thing that that spoke to me when we we're looking, like I looked at you know customer loyalty, and one of the things that I've heard is that the in the main factor, like the only measurable factor especially in a world where things are commodities and you can do the research and get something cheaper and whatever else, the only true connective measurable point that says, will someone come back? Will they stay a loyal customer? Is that you've created some kind of shared meaningful experience for that customer. Mm -hmm. Now, what that is, we can define and, and, and talk through, but it speaks to me that these kinds of things, whether you see them and notice them or that they're happening to you and just contributing to how you feel, it, it makes sense to me as, as mm-hmm. a measurable difference. You know, just as it makes sense to you, what I find is whether people have ever worked in a design-oriented company or not, it makes sense to most people because most people know, you know, how they feel when they're in beautifully designed environments. It's why the Apple stores work so well. You know, people aren't buying Mac products because the microprocessing power is superior to Dell's. They are, but the, the emotional resonance through all sources or all forms of design is so powerful that I think in, in their industry, they're really in a league of their own. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I definitely spent some, actually spent a, uh, some time in marketing on Apple 
And what's funny is like the whole unboxing trend, even like it goes beyond just the look and the design of the product, even the experience of receiving the product, opening it Mm -hmm. uh, has become part of it. The stores themselves that you walk into, what they look and feel like and the, you know, how they've structured the, the encounters with the service Mm -hmm. team, all of that is, is all thoughtful parts of this that if, you know, they're a leader in the space on. And I think one of the reasons it works with Apple, and this is another important point for others who want to go down this path to remember, is it's all about the details. It's not that all of a sudden you hire one fancy architect and who comes up with a, a sort of template for your flagship store, and then you're going to sort of give some sort of diluted uh, version of that on all, or apply some diluted version on all your subsequent stores. It's about everything. And a lot of the elements They do take time, they take thought, and they take taste. They don't always take money. I always say, you know, because the the assumption is that it takes a lot of money to do this well. When I think of the people I know in my extended circle who have the best taste, it is never the richest people. Because when you're very wealthy, you don't have to make trade-offs. And you don't necessarily have the discipline to sort of understand what you value and how things come together. One of the things that we'll probably get into in this call is that the final step in in exercising and and developing your own uh, aesthetic intelligence, which is another word for taste, is curation. So it isn't just taking everything that feels good to you and putting it out there, but it's really understanding how things come together in a way that the final outcome feels so good. And that is what Apple uh, attends to the detail. It has a consistency across all forms from the, the product to the service design, you know, to the campaigns, as per my earlier comment. And then it knows sort of how to express it in a way that doesn't feel excessive or unnatural. It really is a brilliant display of, of one founder's vision and taste, you know, executed across 100,000 plus people in, you know, thousands of points of location. Right. And you, so you mentioned curation in this, and we do live in an era of abundant choices and lots of decisions. I mean, there's, there's a million things now we can control. What's the value of, of curation for a business? If we can take it to you know, the entrepreneurs out there, the, the business owners out there, what's the value of curation for them? How do they apply some of this? Yeah. Like if they agree with the theory of it, how do they apply some of this to their right. business? Well, the second half of my book, I, I, I do go into that and because I didn't feel it was enough to just make the case that this concept of aesthetics was powerful and uh, maybe even our only differentiator in this very commoditized world. But I felt it was important to say, how do you actually bring aesthetic value into companies. And, you know, the, my theory is that it, it starts with the top. It's very hard for people who are entry level to have huge impact if uh, they're not given uh, supports and sponsorship. And I'd say the, the attention it takes, because it does take time to do this well across a, an entire organization. And what starts at the top is this notion of, of an, an intelligence that is really a four-step like when you think of what goes into developing great taste, because you don't have to be artistic to have great taste. Um, you know, most tastemakers are not necessarily makers or, or artisans, but you do have to have a sensibility. And I'm getting to the curation, but that is the, the, the last step. The first step is really developing your own awareness, awareness of your senses and of what stimuli is out there that is affecting us day in and day out, sometimes minute in and minute out, that we have just for survival's sake, learn to block. You know, we don't want, especially those of us living in urban environments, to hear every jackhammer that's going by. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to be aware of every fluorescent light that kind of makes the person I'm looking at have a, a sickly pallor. 
we block a lot of these uh, uh, stimuli during the course of the of our lives. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, unblock it all such that we wouldn't be able to function. But I think we have to at least be aware because the reality is whether you are aware or not, these elements are having an effect on how you feel and how productive you are and how maybe uh, happy you are. So point number one is, is, is awareness or what I call in the book attunement. You can't stop there, obviously. The next step is what I call interpretation. So it's one thing for me to be aware that certain colors lift my spirit, certain colors make my imagination go a little bit deeper, certain colors have certain effects on me. They may not be the certain uh, same colors that would have that effect on you. And understanding when you have those stimuli, when, when I hear certain kinds of music, what mindset it puts me in, and the more aware you are, not just of what you're hearing and feeling, but the interpretation, what that means for you, I think is that next step. And the third step is what I call articulation. And that is something that Steve Jobs, for example, did so remarkably well. If you work in a company and assuming you're not just a you know, sole proprietor, and you have a team and the team could be 10-person per- team, it could be a 1,000-person, but to really drive aesthetic value, you have to be able to articulate what it is that feels good to you or what your, your aesthetic vision is in such a way that a lot of other people can see it, embrace it, and execute on it. Uh, if you can't do that, it's going to be stuck in your own head and it'll probably be a source of frustration because no one else can get there. And there's a lot of components that go into what does it mean to articulate your taste and your vision. And then that final step, which is the question you just asked, is, is curation. So not just, you know, what do I like? Why? How does it make me feel? And how do I explain it to others? But how do you bring it all together in a way that really works? And that, I think, most companies get wrong. So the, the way I would explain it is if you were making a, a meal for visitors, for house guests, and you said, I want to make a really good dinner, and these are my 10 favorite ingredients. I love every one of them independently. So I'm just going to put them in one big bowl and I'm going to serve it. Clearly, that wouldn't work. And a great meal, as we know, can consists of very few ingredients, but they come together beautifully and in a way that feels special and maybe even has that element of surprise or unexpected that I described earlier. So the curation is, it's really about editing. It's about editing such that not, so such that you're even prepared to take some of the good things out to make the whole that much more exciting and memorable. Right. And that less is more feels very, that simple is better feels very Apple as well. I guess that's why they're like one of the more notable brands that does this kind of thing. Yeah. But even maximalist brands, so even take a, a Gucci, for example, which I right. earlier, sort of putting all of these different bizarre elements together, uh, but they're still editing as well. In their case, the editing may be less around what do I take out, but how do I position things such that there's, you know, that there's a story that's coming through that it doesn't just look like chaos, pure chaos. Gotcha. Yeah, I, that's this is awesome. And what I'm liking, before we take a break for a second, I want to make sure that the people who are listening have a chance to find you, connect with you. If you haven't read the book, found the book, you can go to Amazon. It's Aesthetic Intelligence, How to Boost It and Use It in Business and Beyond. Where can people find you? Where can they find the book? How do they connect with you? So uh, the book is sold in all major retailers. You can go to Amazon.com, to Barnes & Noble stores, or .com, Hudson. So it's, it's out there. I have my own website. It's aestheticintelligence.com. And for those who caught the first part where there was a question about the spelling of aesthetics, it's A-E-T-H-E-S-T-I-C, aestheticintelligence.com. And also you can follow me um, 
I'm pretty active on um, all social media. If you're looking for visual inspiration, uh, then of course there's Instagram, which I'm Tastemaker Pauline. And Tastemaker is the name of my uh, weekly radio show on SiriusXM, Tastemakers. Perfect. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for you guys that still are like, I don't know how to spell aesthetic. I'm not even trying. That's, that'll all be in the show notes for you. You don't have to do the work. It's okay. And let's take a step uh, back for a second. I want to just hear about like you and the process. We've done a lot of the, the theory and the tactics because I wanted to get into uh-huh. the helpful stuff. But what, in, what did inspire you to write the book? You were teaching the class. You had these ideas. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. I want to take on this process of, you know, this one, two, whatever year process of turning this into a book, like why would you even bother? It's so much work. <laughs> well, it is a lot of work. So what is it? Was It came out of, uh, as do a lot of uh, books and other <laughs> inventions, it came out of frustration. Right. I did not feel that the business world was married to the real world in how it talked about whether it's consumers or marketplace and how it functioned. I found most executives and I you know, got to a fairly senior level in a few companies I thought the more senior that they became, and I guess I became as well back in the day, the more removed uh, they and we became from the reality of the buyer and who that buyer is, not just when they're, for example, in the store buying your goods, but you know who they are as people and how they live and what they care about. We're still sort of focused on the demographics and the metrics. And there's so much discussion in the big world about big data and about automation and about robotics and you know AI. And that's why when I talk about aesthetic intelligence, I call it the other AI. It's not that you can do away with this quantitative and technical facets of business. It's very, very important to, to manage big data. It just isn't sufficient. It just, and, and what happens if you're lopsided, as most businesses are, toward big data and analytics is that they become increasingly dehumanized. And they're dehumanizing for people who work for them, and they're dehumanized for the people who are experiencing them. It's why the department stores have gone so far south. You know, department stores and malls in general used to be entertaining, used to be fun. To me, it's, it's hellacious. It's like going through an airport. I mean, you do it because you kind of have to. But, and I'm not just talking at holiday season, you know, when, um, when the traffic is at its peak, even when there's no one in the stores, they're just deadly and deadening experiences. So I, I thought there were a couple of... Uh, reasons this book had to get out. Um, one was just you know, my own frustration that nobody else was really adapting their language or their thinking to a new world. I think some of it was, um, I also noticed, and, and this goes well past the business world, this is the education world, but it's also siloed. So if you study medicine, you know, from an early age, meaning maybe 18 or maybe 20, 22, you know, you're, you're siloed, you're not expected or even given the bandwidth to study, you know, art or art history or language. And similarly, I was undergrad, a liberal arts major, I was an English major. And, um, you know, I felt that I was not taken seriously because I was sort of coming from the world of, of soft learning. And then I went, you know, to business school uh, and I went to a very uh, rigorous, uh, quantitatively inclined business school. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone who I'm tracked with were interested in going into banking and they're all kind of from engineering backgrounds. And I just thought that there were so few people that really had sort of integrated their thinking the way we ha- should be integrating all elements of our life. And that was reflective of what the business world was doing as well. So I was in luxury goods, for example, and it was so siloed that I didn't even meet people 
who came there maybe from heavy industry or from uh, technology, you know, and, and that's not healthy. Any form of homogeneity is not healthy. Uh, it's not healthy in ecosystems. It's not healthy, you know, in uh, governing bodies. It's not healthy in companies. And so part of what I'm uh, pushing for is just to have more integrated thinking and for, to allow people to also bring more of their self, their personal self to their work. You know, I look around and I even think of myself earlier in my career where who I was at work in terms of maybe how I dress, what my office looked like, even the language I used was a different person than who I was at home. And that's very strenuous to sort of live this bifurcated existence. And, uh, and so, you know, I encourage, and I talk a lot about it in the book, people to bring as much of themselves into their work life such that it becomes more organic. Uh, and more enjoyable. And by the way, you are more differentiated, you know, because I came to the conclusion only late in my career that there's only one thing in the world that I do better than anyone else. I mean, anything else you could point to, we'll find tons of people. Some areas I'm stronger than others, but there's tons of people in all areas that will do some particular facet better than, than I or, or a particular skill better than I. But the one thing no one can do better than I is be Pauline Brown. And, you know, why don't we double down Instead of always focusing on areas of improvement in work environment, why don't we double down on, on what we do so well and who, who we are and bring those values and those sensibilities to our work lives in a way that feels good and uh, I think gets results. Right. Well, definitely something that I think that these new ideas, these, this new way of thinking about it, I think is definitely needed. It wasn't there before. And within the book, you, tell, you give a lot of great stories, a lot of good examples if that, you know, real world examples of this in practice, and you've shared a few with them, with us today. And as we have just a couple questions left here in our, in our time together today, mm-hmm. uh, I would love to, to extract some more of those uh, amazing stories of like the good or, and or bad aesthetics that you've seen out there in the world. So let me give you a great example of a really bad one. And they're both interesting because um, they, you know, unlike say Gucci or Apple, they're probably not things you would expect me to pick up on and talk Perfect. about. So a great one would be who in the history of vacuum cleaners thought that a, a vacuum cleaner could actually look good, that it wasn't just designed to suction dust. And what's interesting, and I'm specifically alluding to Dyson here, which you know innovated both in design and in technology around their own vacuum cleaner, is you know that Dyson didn't start designing simply to look good. In fact, the big innovation, Dyson, James Dyson, the founder, uh, studied at the Royal Academy of Art in London. So he's an artist by training and he studied interior design and furniture design. So he, he's very artistically disposed. But he actually had a patent that, uh, and this is going back probably in the 70s or, or 80s, that allowed for the first ever bagless vacuum cleaner. So back in the day, you'd actually you know, suction the, duck, it, the, the, the dust and the grime into a bag that would have to be changed every so often and fill up eventually. And Dyson was the first one that didn't require a bag. So it was, you know, a classic case of, of something that started with more of a utility edge. But I think that they also knew that that particular innovation wasn't going to be enough to sustain the company and make James Dyson a billionaire as he is today. And the idea that they were, they were so mindful about how the, for example, the various uh, attachments, the hoses and so forth, and the nozzles, how they were screwed on such that it was easy on the hand. They were so um, thoughtful about the colors and how they came together for the different parts. And it really is, is a, a beautifully designed product. Even the original one, which is now 
you know, probably 20 plus years old, looks as modern today as anything I'd see from, you know, a, a competing uh, vacuum cleaner line. So I think that's one where they were able to really reinvent what we can expect from a device that existed for no other reason than a very simple and straightforward utility. And they, by the way, are able to charge a huge premium on it. You know, they're well over $1,000, probably 2x what, you know, comparably powered vacuum cleaners are in the market. An example of a failure, um, and I have quite a few, but one of the more prominent ones in my business lifetime. I can't wait. <laughs> is, uh, I would say, the, uh, the introduction of Google Glass. So you remember, oh, yeah. and, and I don't know if you were at the time, but what's interesting about Google Glass is, and it was a debacle, and it didn't fail because the glasses didn't do exactly what they said they would do. It did everything that they said they would do. It wasn't a technological failure. And it didn't fail because the market said, you know what, uh, I like it, but you priced it too expensive. I can't justify. Nobody ever walked away because, you know, I think they, they, they priced it very carefully. It didn't fail because people didn't know about it. They had an enormous marketing budget and so much buzz. And I can't, I remember at the time I was in the fashion industry and they even found a way to get those freaking Google glasses on models going down the runway. So they were certainly paying their way and they were doing everything in the textbook form to raise awareness to create buzz, and to uh, research the hell out of this very expensive innovation. So why didn't it work? Very simple, because it felt so stupid wearing it. It felt stupid <laughs> on your head, and it, it, was, it was a disaster in terms of, you know, I mean, there, there's a, a gazillion memes, if you Google it, about, you know, the, the Google Glass man and, you know, all sorts of funny things that, that people were saying on the, I mean, you, you sort of felt like your whole social status was at risk if you put it on. And it was a lack of empathy, not just because it looked silly, but because people started to shun other people who were wearing it, thinking, that's just creepy. You know, I don't want you taking, you know, pictures or even have the capacity while you're walking past me on the street. So there was a bit of a, a sort of ostracizing that came from anyone who dared wear it. And so I say that's, a, that's an example because, you know, you look back again, it wasn't for lack of resources and lack of research, but you had a a bunch of presumably engineering types in Silicon Valley who thought through everything except how does this actually look and how does it feel on the body and, and, and what does it say about me if I were to wear it or what, what would I think of someone else wearing it? So that was an utter uh, lack of, of empathy. I think that the, uh, the Facebook, uh, well, under Facebook, but the Oculus Rift, the virtual reality headset, was also a real failure of aesthetics in that you know, VR is a very exciting concept. There's a lot of reasons. And certainly, you know, if you think of the explosion of gaming, you know, and, uh, and high-tech high uh, entertainment, it should have worked. But at the time it came out, I don't know, it was probably five, six years ago, among many other complaints, people had it, it, it actually, because they designed it with in mind that there was one shape of head, and, you know, people's head shapes are pretty radically different. It, for many people, they got what they called... Um, like dent, I can't, there was a reference back in the day, but it was like dents on the side, indents on the side of their forehead and by oh their temples. It actually hurt, and people were feeling nauseous wearing it. I don't know if you remember all the reports that oh, were yeah. coming out. And so my point is that, that that's aesthetics. That's not, you know, it, again, it was delivering on the virtual reality front. It was just something that, you know, on the body, through the senses, was a failure and wasn't considered properly in the preparation of its, its launch. Well, I, I think those are amazing examples, and I wish I had an extra hour to spend with you today. The, I mean, you have a whole chapter on the future of aesthetics, which I, I think that 
that everyone would be benefited to, to read where this Thank is going. You. I think a lot of alignment with what we talk about here, which is things, you know, being more human, more community focused and thinking about how that plays out when you design products and services and even how when you're speaking to people or, or in your sales process. I mean, all these right. things can be applied to business to build better relationships with customers and build more loyal and fanatical audiences, which is what we all want. So, so well, thank you. Thank you for having me and, 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 you know, including me in this ongoing dialogue on branding. Really honored to be a part of the conversation. And, uh, and I appreciate your kind feedback on the book. Absolutely. Again, it was a great book. You guys should get out there, get it on Amazon, Aesthetic Intelligence, how to boost it and use it in business and beyond. Pauline Brown here with us. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you again, Brandon. All the best. All right. Thanks for tuning in to you guys and the audience. And we will catch you next week. You've just taken your marketing knowledge to another level with this episode of Brands on Brands on Brands. But we have plenty more ways to not just help you build a business, but build a brand. Head over to brandandbrands.com for more resources, as well as access to our blogs, videos, and exclusive coaching sessions with your host. Be sure to visit brandandbrands.com.